Welcome to Tell Tales, Dakota folk life and stories, a collection of narratives, personal experiences, and the history of the North Dakota Plains. In this episode, we speak with Joseph Ellis, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author. Ellis's work focuses on the lives and times of the founding fathers. His book, American Sphinx, the character of Thomas Jefferson, won a National Book Award. Founding Brothers, the revolutionary generation, won the Pulitzer Prize for History. Both books were bestsellers. Use of the phrase, all politics is local, dates back to the 1930s. But according to Joe Ellis, the Founding Fathers were well aware of this. The dominant mentality throughout the uh, Founding Era is local and at best state-based in terms of their perception of what they regard as representative government. You can't be represented by somebody who's far, far away and is not a person like your neighbor who knows your own interests. The typical American in the revolutionary and founding era has a limited perspective. He or she doesn't think about much beyond a three-day horse ride. One of the reasons they didn't support the Continental Army in the war, but they supported militia, is that those were the people that defended them at the local and state level. So that the form of government created, called the Articles of Confederation, accurately reflected the local mentality of the vast bulk of the citizenry. They could not think nationally. They could not think continentally. So they didn't think continentally, but... How did the Constitution affect this? The, the weird thing about the Constitutional Convention is they're trying to set up a nation before we are a nation. Uh, most of the time, a national mentality develops slowly, and then a government is created to represent that. In the United States, they create a national government before they're a nation. The belief that the term United States is a singular noun doesn't exist. It's a plural noun. The United States are, not the United States is. Lincoln's, the most famous speech in American history, is historically incorrect. Uh, when Lincoln at Gettysburg said, uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. That's not true. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states who, uh, after the war, were going to go back to their own local definition of representation. The, the, the form of government that exists after the revolution is the Articles of Confederation, which is exactly the kind of arrangement that the South will insist on in 1861 as a confederacy. But we do have this collection of all these states, like North Dakota, emerging, making their own laws and regulations based on what they want. They can, as long as they remain a republic. That is to say, they cannot do so if they set up uh, an autocratic government or with medieval, what they would say, medieval values about kingship. They have to be republics. The constraints on what they can do are established in the 1780s. They have to be republics, and they have to be committed to ending slavery by no later than 1800. So there are certain terms they have to meet. They have to be a certain size. To be admitted, they have to be a population as large as the smallest state in the union at that present time. So there are terms. 
but they are free to go about it in their own way. Joe, what was the process for a, a state to be admitted to the union? Was it was it up to Congress? Yes. At the end, the, the, the territory would, would elect a governor and a legislature. And once they reached the appropriate size, population-wise, they applied for membership to the existent Congress of the United States. There would be a committee there that would consider their appeal, and usually if the population was large enough, it was almost automatic. But these states differed in how they governed. Yeah. For, For example, North Dakota, which became a state in 1889, ended up with a state bank, a mill, an elevator. In fact, the Bank of North Dakota is the only government-owned general service bank in the United States. They did. You're talking now, once you get to North Dakota, that this is the land that will have been acquired in the Louisiana Purchase. By then, they've got a lot of experience about new states coming in. All the, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and then down in the south, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, all those territories have already come in. So when you cross the Mississippi and the land acquired in the purchase becomes available, they have a lot of experience with this. And some degree of leeway with this is certainly possible based on the unique situations in the respective incoming territories. So in the end, Joe, really what we're talking about is states' rights, aren't we? Uh, Can you offer some perspective about states' rights? In the founding period, the idea of states' rights is broadly shared throughout the populace and is the operative principle under the Articles of Confederation. Under the Articles, states are sovereign. There can be no legislation over domestic policy at the, at the national level that imposes its will on them. And at that stage of the game, the reasons for that are basic. That is the way in which most Americans think. They think of government as something close to them, something they can see and touch almost. Their representatives are people they know who are their neighbors. At some point in time in the late 18th and early 19th century, the term states' rights becomes a Southern idea that is essentially designed to protect the Southern states from uh, any attempt to force emancipation on them, to end slavery. Certainly, by the time you get to the Civil War, The issue of states' rights is resolved not in the courts, but on the battlefield. Produced in partnership with Dakota Legacy, this project is supported in part by a grant from the North Dakota Council on the Arts, which receives funding from the North Dakota State Legislature and the National Endowment for the Arts.